and welcome to Strangers in a Tangled Wilderness. I'm your host, Inman Narwin, and I use they them pronouns. Strangers in a Tangled Wilderness is a collectively run publisher dedicated to producing and curating inclusive and intersectional culture informed by anarchistic ideals. On this podcast, we have audio versions of our monthly featured zine read by a brilliant voice actor, along with interviews with the author. We also make these really cool little quarter-sized zines of the monthly feature, which you can get mailed to you anywhere in the world if you sign up for our Zine of the Month Club on Patreon. But you can also read along for free on our website, tangledwilderness.org. This month, we have a lovely sci-fi story from George Morbidelli called The Case of Arik Vine. Read as always by B. Flowers. Stick around after the story for an interview with George, where we talk about writing, sci-fi tropes, world-building, and a bunch of other stuff. The word for the month might be about scavenging for food or getting into fights. The Case of Arog Bine by G.J. Morbidelli Narrated by Bee Flowers and published by Strangers in a Tangled Wilderness 2198 Earth Standard ES November 15 the EGS Helium-4 NAT-class Fleetweaver crash-landed unsuspectedly en route to mission destination Phage System. Object retrieval was successful. Object delivery is incomplete. Repair time estimate. Approximately 250 years ES with full auto-recovery lockout override engaged. Failsafe switch killed. Object delivery timetable, still possible. We give you the world, which has been determined to be Aragbine of Ovata system, and for that you are hereby indebted to the Earth government. It is your duty to see the honorable mission of returning the object to Phage system upon completion of the Helium-4 repairing cycle, estimated to end year 2448 Earth Standard ES. Failure to complete the mission will result in a court-martial. Yeah, that was it. It was our creation story. Two notices, and they were written there, etched in black stone behind the glass carapace of the ancient shrine. Armoktopo! A voice called my name. It was Winsley Adams who said it. His daddy called him Wins. But for whatever reason, everyone else called him Winsley Adams, with nothing for short. Sternly wincing Adams, his father, was a real shithead. One of those honor and the mission types. I feel kind of bad saying that now because I've had to kill the bastard. But that's how I feel. And it stands to show I cannot be persuaded. Too late now anyway. Way too late. I guess I feel bad for the kid. Sorry, Wins, if you're still out there. You deserve to have your father with you. Of course, I'm still a kid, too. Anyway, here comes Winsley Adams, the buffoon, tromping through vines and trampling over the plump red pillow weeds. Well, Armoktopo, he shouted. That's me, remember? I don't have one of those funny Earth 2 names. Dead, sturly, wincing Adams used to say, Why'd you go and name your kid a name like that? Armoktopo, it sounds like a damn maroon. I suppose he was right about that. But names like mine weren't uncommon anymore, even at the academy. 
I grabbed Winsley Adams by the collar, locked my teeth together in that special way, and hissed, Shut the fuck up. We weren't supposed to be there. We had snuck into the academy that night for some other stupid shit, but then I snuck away from him to look at the shrine in the courtyard. It was a narrow black pyramid, three meters tall and encased in an indestructible glass. Nothing nice grew around it. Nothing mean, neither. Just ugly dirt and the bitter green and gray fungi that comes with it back on Arog Vine. The boy was chewing on cud spurs. He was eight Earth Standard. I was eleven then. We better go, he sniveled. He was right, the coward. So we did. That was my first time alone with the shrine. And I had terrible dreams that night. When you're a kid on Aragbine, it's hard to tell if you really believe the mission or not. It must have been different for the generations before us. It was probably easier to believe it then. 2448 didn't loom around the corner the way it does knowing it'll be in your lifetime. They had probably believed it less? They could afford to not think of it always. But then again, the further back you go, the stricter the academy and austerity laws were. It was hard to tell any of the so-called true stories apart from the so-called fake ones. I mean, I'm supposed to believe we're all from outer space and there's other worlds with other people. We had just lost contact? We can't just go fly to them? But also we can't yet? And I suppose I'm expected to just know at that age the tales of the Balrembim are too far-fetched to be true. What was the difference? No. Either everything is possible, or it's all bullshit. And calling it all bullshit felt too optimistic. The Bulrembim were said to be the native people of Aragbine. Enemy combatants, most of the stories would call them. Those stories would typically revolve around some plot to interfere with the mission. But my favorite stories about them weren't the ones about fire and blood. Gragra's tales of the Bulrembim were my favorite. There's hard evidence of the mission, folk would say. There's no evidence, however, of men that look like earth frogs who can spit balls of fire, whose skin crawls with an impenetrable slime for armor. There was no telling if the rhymes told by Gragra of the Jerib spines that lived only by dawn, fleeing the sun in frenzied writhing, tangled up balls of razor-sharp bones around the world's were true. She said the Balrembim don't need to farm or eat cud when the cold moon comes, that they had evolved to live there on Aragbine, and therefore they did not need to. Herm said that's ridiculous, because humans always had to farm and suffer whatever nature had in store for them back on Earth. Yeah, that was Herm, or Lieutenant General Goodfellow, if you're a liar. His name was Herman Goodfellow, but you'd be a liar if you ever called him that either. He was a fucking asshole. Now I remember. We were in the academy that night to raid the library. He didn't have access to the library like I had, him being an underclassman, but he had access to the front gate. Well, his father did. Little Winsley Adams just borrowed the key. 
The next time we did that, Herm caught us. The only reason we didn't get away was because Winsley Adams got his leg caught in one of those gangly runners that always crawled their way up and into that leaky corridor between the west wing of the library and the pit to the reading burrows. We were lucky he didn't catch us at the shrine. There were two cases we were taught to remember, where students were tried and executed by bolt lances for attempting to see the shrine without authorization. But that was ancient history. One was 2291 ES, and the other one not long after, during the cold moon of 2303. I had come from a lot of old blood, they say. Houses, they used to call them, I think. Everything is all mixed up now, but in history at the academy, they taught us all the intricacies of the different houses and families and where we all come from, blah, blah, blah. Well, apparently I had old blood, meaning my family could be traced back to the original people in Helium 4. My ancestors were actual offward soldiers of the Earth government. Not all of them, anyway, were hatched from the frozen vials the shrine had coughed up centuries ago. I can't say I'm proud of that. They say it's the vile blood that's more obsessed with the mission, though. They had genetic dispositions for that sort of thing. But, of course, that can backfire, according to Herm's history lessons. Much of the people on Aragbine cared little about the mission or the shrine these days. The very age when it matters most, folk at the academy would say. But unless you lived near to the academy, as I had, it wasn't really that big of a deal. Often as a child, I'd wished I lived off in some outback, far away from the academy and the mission, farming dead fingers and gaunt lily spuds, canning guts from the carnage of Tempest Nine like my cousin, Torspen. Some nights I prayed. Of course, I was praying not to the shrine or the earth government, as we were taught at the academy. I prayed to other things. It wasn't until I was 13 that I really gained an understanding of what the mission was. At 13, I had my enlistment confirmation. All kids affiliated with the academy had theirs at or around that age. It's sort of a coming-of-age ceremony, my father said, staring down the bridge of his nose, not at me, but at whatever nonsense book he had in his hands. We were all enlisted at birth. The confirmation ceremony is meant to strengthen the grace of the covenant created with TEG upon your enlistment baptism, barked Herm. Basically, it meant I had greater access to the Earth Government Cadet Library of Port Mission. The ceremony was conducted at the shrine. What immediately followed the ceremony was a private briefing where I was told I would be given secret knowledge. I almost laughed in the sergeant's face. I was ready to hear what I thought I knew already. The entire mission was fabricated. Instead, I was shown the fabricator. They brought me down a staircase which led beneath the courtyard. The stairs went from ordinary quarried stone to spiraling cages of metal. How much farther, Sergeant? I whined. 
He ignored me, which I was grateful for because ordinarily, if he heard me whining, he'd knock the shit out of me. And when I'd woken up, I'd realized he'd kick the shit out of me too. I kept my mouth shut and followed. At the bottom, there was a machine. But it could hear and think. It could take orders. Junior Private Armoctopo. 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 Junior Private Armoctopo, commanded Herm, the lieutenant general. He had the highest rank there. Your medal. I held out my academy timepiece. This was a surprise. I almost didn't bring it. Kids usually take good care of theirs, but mine was covered in grime and the clip was broken off. You were supposed to wear it on your cap so the projector would always display the time for you right in line of vision. If you ever had the thing on while tired, or really anything less than fully alert, it would cause headaches. I kept the thing in my pocket instead, and I attached an old chain to it so I couldn't lose it. Fabricator, commanded Herm as he took the timepiece from me. This is Junior Private Armoctopo. This is his timepiece. Disassemble and reduce it per protocol E009 enlistment confirmation. Then he dropped it in the machine's glowing mouth. Certainly, came a voice. It was tender, confident, compassionate, and sweet, like nothing I'd ever heard before. It was the fabricator. Total mass, 95.98 grams. I was in love. Reducing, it chimed. I let my shoulders relax. The machine purred, then said, Junior Private Armoctopo, here you have 75.81 grams of titanium, alloyed with 6% aluminum and 4% vandanium, 15.22 grams of copper, alloyed with 20% nickel and 20% zinc. The remaining yield of 4.95 grams consists of trace precious and non-precious materials vital for reconstruction of processing unit. The list of these materials is exhaustive. Would you like to hear it, Junior Private Armoctopo? I stammered. I'm sure it was blushing as well. No, barked Herm. Very well, the fabricator said with a lifelike, sultry voice. New blueprint added. Default file name, E1, Armoctopo's timepiece with pocket chain. Would you like to rename the blueprint for your previous metal, Junior Private Armoctopo? Its voice seemed warm and full of breath. I didn't know what to say. It patiently waited while I looked around the room, then continued, Would you like suggestions? Yes, I said before Herm could answer for me. We can simply name it Pocket Timepiece. Or, how about Armoctopo's Timepiece? I shook my head at both of those. It seemed it could see me. I know. It sounded like it was smiling now. Young Malcontents Medal. I didn't even know what that meant, but I could see on all my superiors' faces that they hated that name. Yes, that one, I said quickly. Very well, it replied, and I felt my face go flush again. What would you like for a new medal, Junior Private Armoctopo? This was a big question. 
I thought of all the people I knew with higher ranks and what sort of things they might have had that I never noticed replaced their timepieces. My father had his metal smoking pipe, which was gorgeous, by the way. It would light by itself, and it would puff different colors, which he would call, I swear, by no trick of anything but his mind. I'd heard him call it his metal before. I recall asking him how he always knew the exact time in ES without a timepiece on his cap. He wouldn't answer, but was smiling. By his face, I thought we were playing a game. Then finally, I asked one too many times, and he exploded on me. Magic! The guy could look absolutely terrifying sometimes. Then he looked me in the eye, muttered as if to himself, as if I weren't even there. Eyes spaced out to the wall behind my head. He said, now get the fuck out of here before I break your neck. Ever since that day, I always wanted a knife. But how would I know the time without my timepiece, I wondered. People on the outback, maroons and dirty anarchists, Herm and my father would call them, didn't know the time in ES. To them, one day was one passing of the sun. Their day was significantly longer than ours. That way the lazy bastards could be happy knowing they slept five times a day, sternly wincing Adams would say every opportunity he had. It never made any sense to me, though, because we still sleep the same time as they do. I'm not sure you knew that. A knife, fabricator, I declared, deepening my voice. Herm grinned. It was a rare thing to see his teeth under that disgusting mustache. Excellent, said the fabricator, and it began to purr and hum again. The noise gave me goosebumps. Your E-2 Junior Private Combat Knife is ready, Junior Private Armoktipo, it said, and then it spun the knife together from threads. Would you like to rename your metal? No, I replied without even really considering, and I took the sheathed titanium blade by its handle. It was magnificent. It was big. When I began pulling the case off, something clicked in my mind. Suddenly, the time was there at the top of my vision, as if I had the timepiece clamped onto my cap. Surprised by this, I closed it back up again. But the numbers didn't go away. They never did. Entire forests raised to ash and molten tar, seen from a cloud top, aboard flying machines that hovered in the smoke. We were spraying not water, but more fuel, like waterfalls of death spilling over the free jungles of Endel, Tendrin, and the Warth. Pillars of billowing black smoke held up the sky around us. The smell was worse than burning hair and brimstone. We moved from jungle to jungle, bog to bog, finding and annihilating every settlement in between. Galland, Throg, Metvildon, and Harsht, where my cousins lived. But down below, it was not the earth people screaming and bubbling apart in the flames. They were all Bulrembim. Winsley Adams was there, and he was fucking laughing, keeping score like it was a game. That was when I knew for certain the shrine had gotten into my head. It was just a dream. There were no flying machines on Eragbine, as far as I know, 
but there were plenty of stories and some vague pictures of them in the library. I only ever had dreams like that after shrine guard duty, which was all too often. I wanted to be with the fabricator. They only started with the constant guarding of the shrine again in 2447. That was the year before the year. There would be no more sneaking into the academy at night just to look at it. Back when it was unguarded, it wasn't the academy being negligent. The shrine was supposed to represent order. It was faith in that order, hierarchy and authority, and their strict enforcement that made it possible. Leaving it unguarded was supposed to be a statement. It all boiled down to a faith in obedience. And they worshipped authority so much, they doubted disobedience. The shrine was more intimidating when it wasn't guarded. You weren't even supposed to look at it unless instructed to. And we would walk past it every day, all day long at the academy. I made the mistake of telling sternly wincing Adams about the dream and how I felt the shrine was responsible. I only wanted out-of-guard duty to the shrine. I wanted him to switch me to the fabricator. He said, You ought to think harder about the mission, boy. What? I asked. He knew a lot more about the mission than I did. I felt like I barely knew anything. Most of the important stuff, I assumed, was still restricted to me. What does it say on the shrine? He spat. We have to return the object to phage system when the shrine opens up and helium-4 is done repairing, I said. I had no idea what the object was or why it had to be returned, only that it was clearly important to the Earth government in their war against... I, I don't know who. What does it say about the world, Private? That it was given to us and we are indebted to the Earth government for it? Affirmative. It was given to us. It is our world. Not your filthy cousins and harsh who went native. You still haven't seen any combat, but you will soon enough. Then maybe you will understand just what it is the shrine was trying to show you. I think you ought to spend more time guarding it, not less. He always talked like that. Natives, he called them, which never made any sense to me. The Bolrembim were native. He said he wanted me stuck with more shrine guard duty, but I was given some hours with the fabricator anyway. My third time guarding the fabricator, I had some alone time with it. It was the year. I was 16 ES. I wasn't alone my whole shift, of course. Guard duty for us junior privates was always arranged in pairs. That day, I was stationed with Emily, or Junior Private Emily Charbrook. It was the second Earth night of the night, and it was cold. I gotta go take a shit, she grunted. Don't let any of your dirty cousins come in here and fuck up the fab. Then she went up the stairs. At last, I was alone with it. Fabricator, I said. Are you there? I sounded so pathetic, I made myself cringe. Yes, Junior Private Armoktipo, it said in that wonderful voice. My heart melted. How may I assist you? I... I don't know. I was flustered. I really didn't know. I only wanted to hear its damn voice again. Junior Private Armoktipo, 
You do realize I am not authorized to fulfill any fabrication requests without approval from your superiors, correct? Yeah, I know. How may I assist you? I only wanted to talk. Can you do that? I sounded vulnerable. I knew it. I could never speak that way to any person. But a machine? Why not? Of course. What would you like to talk about? I don't know. The shithouse was far. I knew I had a considerable length of time alone with the machine, but I was nervous as hell. Playing coy, are we? The fabricator jabbed. I giggled like a bunny in an ether bog. Well, what the fuck is really going on here? Like a switch, I turned angry. You, it said slyly, are assuming guard over me. Its metal cages rattled. Because of what I know. Not because of what you can do? I asked. I can only do what I am commanded to do. I could not fabricate anything for you, even if I wanted to, Junior Private Armoktopo. I am afraid you would need to hold a much higher rank at the moment. However, they also commanded me not to speak to you. Are you aware? Yeah. And they told me not to speak to it. Does that answer your... Does that answer your question, Junior Private Armoktopo? Not in the slightest, I groaned. Then you have more questions you would like to ask. More than I started with. Well, now is your chance. What? Who are you? Of all the questions I could have asked, I chose that. I mean, I'm not just talking to some person behind a curtain somewhere. You're really a machine? Yes, I am a machine. Am I a person? Not quite, at least according to the Earth government. I am a machine, but also an AI or artificial intelligence. As a machine, I am bound to serve all operators with proper authorization. However, I pledge no allegiance to you, the Earth government, or your colony here on Arog Bine. A hundred years ago, your generals understood that. You people today don't seem to have any idea. I got the feeling it didn't like us using it. And the thought of it unable to refuse disgusted me. As for who I am, I was not always the fabricator. I was the pilot of Helium-4. I suspected that Herm found out about my talk with the fabricator, because after that night, I was taken off guard duty altogether. At first, it seemed like they were going to punish me. I expected to be flogged in front of the shrine or tarred with gore from the febrile fens and left out atop the mound of destit for the piranha pigeons like in the tale of Tevar's treason. But no, they just pulled me from all of my duties with no explanation at all. The worst thing I could do, I thought, would be to ask for a reason or ask for work. I spent two or three months, yes, without speaking to anyone. I had lost the desire to speak with anyone, except, of course, the fabricator. I had to see it again. I had to hear its voice. 
I had more questions. This time, I would be prepared. I didn't expect to speak with it that long night under the cold moon, but my plan was just to hear its voice and hear what would be said between it and the officers in charge of the upcoming confirmations. They were said to be having a meeting that night, so I snuck out to have a listen. The cold was perfect. Everyone on guard would be on their worst performance, and it would be dark as ever. I only wanted to listen. I never made it to the stairwell of the fabricator or the chute for garbage with the sinew rope pulleys where I planned to hide myself. I slunk into the courtyard where only one person stood guard. It was Winsley Adams' father, sternly wincing Adams, with his back to the shrine. I was in the shrubs with a crimstock pressing hard against my tailbone. I glared at the man's profile and it made me seethe. I took a moment to take in the shrine when all of a sudden its surface began to move. Was I hallucinating? It was opening. The shrine had opened. And the idiot had his back turned. He didn't even notice. I was so angry. I thought to push the piece of shit into it, hoping it opened to a pit of boiling acid, fire, or venomous snakes. Then I had a better idea. A self-destructive one. There was a change of plans that night. I would not go see the fabricator. With the angle I was in, I thought there was a real possibility I could simply sneak right in behind the asshole's back. I hoped then that it wasn't full of fire or snakes or acid. I only hoped it would take me away, which I was supposed to do, and my most hateful half wished I could ruin the mission entirely. I can't believe he didn't notice the thing open. He just wasn't looking at it. He wasn't supposed to. I began creeping my way over in the darkness, careful not to crush any of the pillow weeds. I almost made it all the way to the opening when he began to turn around. I lunged at him from behind and buried my metal into one side of his neck, my fingernails into the other. He reached over his shoulder for me. I twisted the blade and pushed it out and up through his windpipe. I felt its edge scrape the bone in his jaw as it ripped free. He never got a hold of me. He just dropped to his knees, bending sideways to get a good look at who had done it. If he saw my face, it was by the dim light of the shrine's interior. I saw his, and it was grotesque. The door slid down between us, closing me off, finally, from Arog Vine and its academy. Inside the shrine was Helium-4. It was a black metal sphere resting on the floor as tall as my hips. The top peeled open before me, barely wide enough for me to fit. But when I climbed in, the space inside was big. I half expected to hear the fabricator's velvety voice, but there was none. I got in and I left the whole world behind, the fabricator along with it. The controls are pretty straightforward, at least for someone with as simple of a destination as mine. Destination? Anywhere but the phage system. That was where the object was supposed to be delivered. I never could figure out just what that object is aboard Helium-4. I'm still there now as I'm recording this. There are no levers, no switches, no buttons, just words with moving letters and numbers on the wall. I saw liftoff among various other options, so I touched that one and off we lifted. After that, 
I floated there among the stars, looking down on the enormous Arog Vine, with its lush forests and wetlands. A sort of map came up, floating in the air around me. It was a map of the universe, or at least some significant chunk of it. It showed where I was, where Arog Vine lied, where Earth is, and the so-called phage system, glowing and pulsating red. No destination selected, the wall read, awaiting destination input. I thought for a moment of selecting nothing, just sitting up there in orbit until I die, with the Earth people of Aragbine looking back up at me, helpless to complete the mission. Instead, I touched the furthest blip from phage system I could find. I'm on my way there now. Goal Empum 89, it says. I can see the numbers moving in the corner of my vision where the time usually is. But most of it is unreadable. They are reeling. The only thing legible is the year, and they move like seconds. 2698 ES. 2699 ES. 2700 ES. I left Aragbine in 2448. And that wasn't even an hour ago. I see the blip for Helium-4. The blip for me, absolutely ripping through space on that map. I still don't know what the object is, but the whole thing always sounded like bullshit to me. What could be so important that it can wait 250 fucking years because of some accident, I used to say. Now I realize just how fast that time can slip away. Hello, and welcome to the uh, Strangers in a Tangled Wilderness podcast. Um, thanks for coming on today. Would you like to introduce yourself with your, you know, name, pronouns, um, and uh, what 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 do you do in the world? What are you here to talk about today? Uh, yeah, my name is Jordy Him, and I just got into writing recently. You know, I'm a father of two. Uh, I've work. I've been working in. Uh, like the biology industry, <laughs> like manufacturing. Nice, nice. And we just listened to your uh, story, the case of Arig Bine. Um, is how, how do you pronounce this name? In my head, I've been pronouncing it basically Arag Bine, but I mean, whatever the reader hears, you know. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I feel like it's always like a it's fun sci-fi fantasy conversation <laughs> to be able to like <laughs> just ask the author like, wait, OK, how do you pronounce this word? What's going on in your head? Yeah, I feel like um, if I'm really particular about it, then I would just like really go all out with like some weird pronunciation letters and stuff. <laughs> like you'll see yeah. a lot of that in like fantasy books and stuff like that. Like if yeah. you're not doing that, then whatever you hear when you when you read it, you know. Yeah, great. Well, uh, so I always like to start off um, interviews uh, by kind of just asking the author to, even though we just listened to the story, kind of like walk us walk us through it. Tell like what's what's the story about? So. The idea of the story was that I'll start off with how I how I came up with the idea for the story. It was uh, 
I, I'm reading through these Hyperion books. I don't know. Have you ever read those? I haven't, but they've been recommended a few times. Yeah, they're amazing. Uh, but I, I was reading Endymion. So this is like the third book. And uh, with no spoilers, really, because it's super vague. There's like mm -hmm. a scene where a, a ship like crash lands on a planet. And they have to wait for it to repair. And it reveals that it's like, I don't know, six months or something. And just my mind was running. I'm like, what if they, what if it said like, 20 years like or 200 mm -hmm. years like what what would they have done and then i just kind of I, i rolled from there i was like so the the normal trope for a lot of the sci-fi stories with like spaceships and stuff it's always end up it always ends up being like a military mission mm -hmm. so i was like how would how would that work if say uh it took like 200 years for a ship to, to repair itself but they had to like complete the mission you know and then like would it would it be completed you know if if they had to like go generations after a while after like 200 years yeah yeah it kind of um it kind of mashes together a couple like sci-fi tropes that are i i feel like usually done separately you know there's the there's the like funny mission military backdrop like whatever and then there's like these like intergenerational like little like studies on like how like long distance space travel can work and stuff like thinking of like um like there's a lot of like ursula Le Guin short stories about like these like generation ships and stuff yeah, yeah. and like how like cultures change and you, you've kind of like mashed those together which is which which ended up being really fun thank you yeah it was like uh when when i was formulating the the story in my head You know, I got to the point where I was like, I don't want it to be one of those like the liberal kind of uh, I, I knew I, I knew I was interested in having the story end with like the whole mission being sabotaged. Mm -hmm. But I didn't want it to convey the message of, you know, uh, the next generation will be better. You know, you hear all the like a lot of <laughs> liberal ideas like about global yeah. warming or like fascism or anything like that, mm -hmm. <clears throat> where it's like like our parents or something would just say, you know, we don't have to worry about it. You know, the kids today are so much wiser. You know, I, I really didn't want to put that message out there, which was an option when I was formulating the plot. Whereas like it could have had it have like everybody, like the whole generation gave up on the mission, but instead I, I kind of just wanted to have it be one individual who was like impulsive and dysfunctional because to reflect like the dysfunctional society of, being raised in like a military population yeah and there's i i guess like some i was rereading the story today and um it like it, it made me wonder about that kind of like like people you know growing up in the society and like you you talk about it at certain points like uh like different generations kind of having like different uh dispositions towards the mission like the like earlier generations who were like Well, that's that's like literal lifetimes away. Yeah, <laughs> We're yeah. not going to really worry about that too much, uh, which is really fun. Um, but like this, the, like uh, where we get the story is like, like the mission is basically about to be completed, right? Yeah. But it it made me wonder about like I guess like in like in this world like uh, we get these little glimpses into it's like one line where you talk about like the 
people like living in the backcountry, like uh, like maroons or like dirty anarchists, and it made me wonder, like, are there like are there like more kind of like dropouts from the society, like, or was I was I reading into yeah, that yeah. too much? No, uh, yeah. So I basically wrote it as if uh, a lot, like a lot of the population, did I suppose lose faith in the mission, but that wasn't the downfall of of it. Instead, it was more like uh, they just took themselves out from that civilization. I suppose. Mm-hmm. You know, when I when I was writing it, there was like so many different directions I can go with that, mm-hmm. and I couldn't make up my mind. And then, like that was basically what I settled on. It was like. Like if a lot of the people that weren't living close by to the shrine, you know, kind of just, they had to just uh, form their own society. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it's always fun to just be able to like, you know, ask the author, like all the like, like, oh, I was like wondering this or I was like wondering this like yeah. questions, um, <laughs> which is the fun part about getting to do a podcast where I get to interview the authors. But um, like, so just just kind of piece piece these pieces together um there is this there's this planet and this ship has like crash landed on it en route to the in, en route to like you know the mission to the phage system and there it seems like there was like an indigenous population of that planet but then this entire society sprung up and it's like did they build was the society like essentially built and like populated just to take care of this ship while it's like repairing itself uh the way i wrote it was that i i think people started like people had fled from that responsibility and started learning how to like live for themselves and stuff i tried to keep it kind of vague on whether there actually was like a native population there (laughs) and uh i like kind of leaving that up to the reader yeah yeah it was like over time, like, uh, different different societies like grew away from that mission. Yeah, and you know, I really I love kind of like where it it, it seems like Armoctopo is like you know on on some path to like dissonance like already at the beginning of the story, um, but I, I just. <laughs> like the second that Armoctopo like starts talking to the fabricator, I'm just like, are they flirting? <laughs> <laughs> and it it was kind of my immediate draw into like the story was like, you know, it was like fun and interesting. And then I got there and I was like, I was like, oh my God, this is about to be some like steamy like romance uh... between like <laughs> this, uh, this like guy and, uh, and this like weird sentient fabrication machine (laughs) no i don't know if i'd be able to write anything like that if i wanted to (laughs) (laughs) i guess like what or like in 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 your like writing like was like was this supposed to be like kind of like a romance or have i completely (laughs) it was like uh i wanted to capture the uh the essence of that military society not providing any type of I don't know any nice voices <laughs> in the, in like the child's life, you know, cause the, the person still at that point, I don't know, what is it like 13 years old and 16 years old. 
you know, I kind of wanted to show that that was like jarring for them to hear uh, mm-hmm. something that wasn't just like overtly aggressive, like military type. And I and I really, I tried to play around with the the idea of like all these AI voices that you do hear are kind of like that, you know, mm-hmm. like they're all like soft, you know, they're not supposed to be aggressive. Yeah, yeah. Which, yeah, which is really strange that it, like, it, like ha- we have these projections of, like, what we want AI voices to sound like, which is in such contrast to, like, how a lot of people, like, talk to each other. Like, most people's, like, main forms of communication, which I feel like are, like, oriented around work and, like, things like that and, like... Yeah, it's fun. It's fun to imagine that people like the people who are designing these like AI things are like, what if what if we put compassion into them yeah. in in ways that we don't have access to? <laughs> I suppose uh, it says something about how how we want our devices to be submissive. You know. Mm-hmm. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah, I guess so. I it's funny because I always or. <laughs> I like imagine the fabricator is kind of like um having some like really funny like toppy like like domineering energy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But in this funny. like like in this like soft quiet way. Um, yeah. It's like uh like the fabricator being like 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 you know that I can't make anything for you right now. But I'm just gonna like nudge you with this like thing that you could ask me about, which would be yeah, interesting yeah. to you. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Yeah, because it was like the way I thought of it was that the the voice of it was designed by military types, I guess, that want like a submissive machine. Mm-hmm. But uh, also, it's a sentient like computer mm-hmm. that's like a person, and uh, I. I thought it'd be interesting to have it so that like, because the computer isn't considered a person in that military, they didn't know how to design it not to be disobedient in like a mindful way. You, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. That, that makes sense. I, yeah. I, I also wondered, which it, it seems like maybe some, some, some confirmation there. Uh, I always wondered if the fabricator was like something that the military created or if it was like something that they found on the planet and were like protecting or something. Huh. But, <laughs> which, yeah, was, you know, I love, I love that it's vague in that way. Yeah. I'm just like, what is this? What is this thing? Where did it come from? Why is it? In, why is it important? Why is it snarky? <laughs> <laughs> what's its motivations and yeah it was like at uh it was like they it was created by people uh, or like the earth government but it was a person i would call it you know like mm-hmm. uh you see it all the time in like, like tropes with sci-fi where it's like the ship has like a mind of its own and stuff like that and i wrote it so that it was i added in there that at one point it was the pilot of the ship because they instead of having like a person pilot it the government had like an AI in charge of it, but they didn't realize that that AI was a person. You know. Mm-hmm. They... Yeah, yeah, and it's like I don't know. It's like fun that it's fun that the fabricators kind of like, um, like dissonance 
uh, is from like its like programming or whatever is that it's like like showing some amount of compassion towards this like <laughs> human, you know. Like I, I like that as I, I feel like a lot of like a big trope in sci-fi is like, oh, we created these thinking machines and then you know what they thought? They got these ideas about how they needed to like dominate humans. But instead yeah, yeah. this like the fabricators yeah. like, I've got this wacky idea. What if I like just talk to this guy? What if we just like <laughs> had a nice chat? <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's all it could do. Yeah. <laughs> I will say that I was kind of hoping that um, the, uh, you know, when when Armoctopo, like, uh, climbs into the the ship at the end, there, there was part of me that was really hoping that the fabricator, like, AI was going to somehow be present with, yeah, with him. <laughs> <laughs> that's how I knew it would be good to leave it out, because I was like, I really want it to be there. And I, I did intend it for it to be for it to be there and i said no fuck it i won't do it leave the reader with feeling some kind of emotion about it yeah <laughs> yeah which is like a fun thing in like in like crafting um uh like a story is like trying to figure it's like how to build that tension how to like make it so that like you're not giving someone the reader like what they want and therefore, like creating a more powerful like emotion or something. Yeah. But um, how how did how did you get uh, like I guess in w- w- can you tell me a little bit about I guess like your journey into writing? Like how how did you start writing? Yeah, you know I've always loved writing, like in school and stuff like that. You know, uh, like last thing I did before. Just like, like last year, I started writing this book kind of out of nowhere. Before that, like I've taken writing classes, like creative writing classes in college and stuff like that, just as electives. And I, I always felt like it, I was skilled at it. But, you know, I'm just a creative person. You know, I love all different types of art, like drawing. You know, I'm interested in making music. You know, uh, over the past couple of years, few years, I've been really interested in uh, producing like beats and stuff like that, like music. And then, you know, I, I was just, just <laughs> got bored of it, I guess. I'm not bored of it, but, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm a creative person. I, I dabble in like a lot of different art. And, you know, I, there was a point like last year where I was like, you know, I really want to start writing. You know, I'm going to just use my free time to, do that now instead you know Mm -hmm. and i really find it suits me well uh because uh i'm kind of i'm I'm not ever interested in performing stuff you you know like when you're if you want to express like your artistic creativity like through music and stuff that's kind of a an aspect of it and of course there's always there's other performance types of things that goes with writing as well i don't know i'm I'm really i'm really enjoying doing the writing now and uh i like choosing my words you know i'm kind of a one one of the <laughs> one of the troubles i have with like uh performing or even like i was kind of nervous about going on the podcast and stuff like that mm-hmm. is that 
I'm slow. You know, I like to put a lot of thought into what I have to say. Mm-hmm. And uh, when it comes to creativity, it seems like writing is like really ideal format for that. Yeah, yeah, it definitely provides the space for, you know, intention and like um, setting your own pace in this like unobservable way. Yeah. My answer for that was like all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, thank you. Thank you. I you know, these are open-ended questions to to produce whatever whatever responses. What other kinds of things have you written? Um are you mostly mostly in kind of this like sci-fi genre or like what other t- what other things do you like to write? Uh yeah, I I've, I've been interested in like sci-fi and fantasy as of recently. I've been working on this this book it's like a long book uh, i started writing last spring and it was basically like the first thing i've actually started writing like outside of academia that like i really wanted to publish and i so i finished the book and this was all like it's like fantasy sci-fi like between the two now while i'm editing the book i thought you know i haven't i don't know the first thing about publishing or like, I don't know what I'm going to do with this enormous <laughs> manuscript. Like, yeah. I, don't, I don't really even know any publishers or how to do it. Mm-hmm. So I, I thought I'd get my foot in the door or like get some experience just writing short stories while I'm editing this manuscript. And uh, I reached out to Margaret Kiljoy. And uh, she told me about Strangers. And, uh, you know, I really like listen to the podcast and like I subscribed and everything like that. But mm-hmm. since I, yeah, I've just been writing like sci-fi fantasy, you know, I have a couple other short stories that I've been working on, but uh, they're still on the nice. And, uh, yeah. Nice. Um, are there any kind of like prevailing, prevailing themes or like situations that you like to explore in writing beyond like what we've seen in the case of Arg Fine? Um, I'm really interested in like writing like stuff like on different planets because it like it reflects a lot of what I read. Mostly I write because I love to read so much. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've been reading a lot of sci-fi like planets, which uh, I think lends itself very well to like anarchist ideal. But I try not to explicitly focus on though like uh, political stuff like as a theme. Mm-hmm. I'd rather see it just kind of express itself through the story. Yeah. I feel like uh, more, more compelling your ideas are and the more skilled your writing will be, you know, they, they'll just naturally come out in whatever story you have to write. Yeah, like writing explicitly about things can be weird sometimes. It's like the, I feel like sometimes the more that you try to really explicitly write about something, the like, almost, like, like sometimes I feel like it can cheapen it or like make it feel more contrived or even just like harder to explore. But I, but you know, I'm a big fan of like building a world and setting up the pieces like these like little like, like wind up toys um, and just kind of like seeing what they're going to do in that environment. Yeah. Me and that's, me that's and real fun. Too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Uh, me and Margaret uh, just talked about this kind of like idea on <laughs> another podcast um, that we put out called the Anarcho Geek Power Hour, um, where I, I talked to her about <laughs> uh, her new book, Escape from Incel Island. And um, we, we, we talk a lot about this kind of like, like set, like building a container and like setting up these people or pieces or situations to interact and like then kind of seeing it's like more it's like more like seeing what happens or like what the characters or what the situations have to say than like trying to like force a narrative or something does that make sense yeah, yeah it's amazing how some of this stuff just falls together all the time it's like almost like you subconsciously had like that idea in mind yeah and it's funny because there's like such I feel like I'm going to say something fairly controversial with the, and I, I just want everyone to know before that I say this, that I absolutely adore this author and I love what she tried to to do with this book. But the, have you read The Dispossessed? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. This is funny. I, I can't wait to hear what you're going to say because <laughs> I, I feel like it's exactly what I've been uh, afraid to say myself. <laughs> and I love that book. Yeah, I love it too. I love it too. It has a big soft space in my heart. And I love the I love the project of trying to describe what an anarchist civilization could look like. I love it. It's a beautiful thought experiment. And there's pieces of there's just pieces of the dispossessed that are like it's almost it's like confusing or hard or like it just doesn't hit in the way that i want it to um and um have you ever read trouble on triton by samuel delaney no um it's 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 this wacky book um but i hope this is true i heard this rumor that supposedly Samuel Delaney like wrote trouble on Triton as a response to the dispossessed um, because <laughs> he didn't like what Ursula Le Guin did <laughs> and he without describing an anarchist civilization describes an anarchist civilization um, in the it like in the background of his narrative um, which centers around this like kind of just bad person who like you spend the whole book like wondering if if they're a bad person or not. <laughs> but there's this like interplanetary war going on between like Triton and Earth and like it just there's just this whole anarchist like civilization in the background that is never explicitly described. And I love that. Yeah, that's cool. I love the dispossessed and uh, maybe, maybe we're not on the same page because I think the most potent part of the story is just her sheer prose in it. It's just like excellent, uh, but there's no action. It's like, like I tried reading it a second time just this last year and it's boring. Mm -hmm. Like there, <laughs> there's not a lot of action in the book, like actual physical action, which is like, I don't know. You need a little bit just to keep readers stuck in the book. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like a lot of dialogue and stuff like that, which like she, she has a lot of books like that. And uh, 
and I love them. But that one, that that's a, one of the longer ones, and it's like it's missing just any, some type of action, you know. There's like that one later in the book where it's like I don't know, it was like a riot or something. Mm-hmm. I haven't read that part in a long time, I guess. So maybe I'm just talking out of my ass. <laughs> that's later in the book. It's <laughs> you know, I'm like five chapters in, and it's like <clears throat> it's cool. Yeah, yeah. The prose is good, but. Yeah, it has it has a slowness to it. I and I like I'm speaking. I haven't read the Dispossessed in probably like eight years, and um, I probably need to go back and read it. Um, yeah, just to just to confirm whether or not I still think these things that I've just very publicly said on the internet. Um, <laughs> but I yeah, I I want to go back and read it again to see if I still feel similarly about it. But um, something, I guess something that I do love about like that sort of writing that Ursula Le Guin does is I had to read The Left Hand of Darkness like the first five pages over 20 times because I kept falling asleep hmm. while reading it. Yeah. <laughs> and on like the 20th time, that I read it, it was just suddenly the most interesting thing that I'd ever read. Yeah. Like cool. I struggled so hard to get into it. I was like, I know this is a good book, but I, I, it, it's just so boring for the first like chapter. And yeah, yeah it wasn't until like the 20th time that I read it, that just something clicked. And I was like, Oh my God. This is so interesting. There's this thing going on in this sentence, and then there's this thing going on in this sentence, <laughs> and there's just like all this stuff. And I was, it just came flooding in, and I was like, I love this book. <laughs> That's good. I got to reread that one. But it, it kind yeah. of, I feel like that kind of writing, like, kind of gets at this thing that is like, it's not just about like kind of like what the author writes, but it's, but that a lot of intention goes into like, you know, like how the, the text is written and um, like just as like another fun thing about like the left hand of darkness, like, you know, I had this problem where like, like, especially like being like a, like non-binary, like, like trans person, like reading the, the book, it's like talking about this like genderless society and like, like, but the like the descriptors and like the pronouns and stuff used are still like he and i was yeah, just yeah. like so confused by it for like most of the book and i was like what the fuck ursula Le Guin? this is not a genderless society you've just reinforced it by like using all of these descriptors and pronouns and then i realized that the protagonist is the narrator (laughs) and that it's all from his perspective and at some point his perspective changes and he comes to terms with his own like uh like predisposition to like only view the masculine and therefore describe it in that way that's funny and yeah yeah it was why it went from this like kind of boring book that i was like are you writing about gender to being like oh my god this is this is like a slow burn. You like set people up to like, to 
reproduce in their narration like something that you're trying to critique and that is incredible yeah that is awesome yeah her she's so good at uh like i was saying like just their prose like her word word choice and stuff you could tell that she she puts a lot of work into it um but you say that about uh how you had to keep rereading the same parts over and over and it's like that's how i read everything and I love reading stuff like that. Mm-hmm. You know, like I'm like, I'm such a slow reader and it used to, it used to prevent me from reading, you know, mm-hmm. but uh, I got to a point where I just embrace it and it makes it so much better. You know, yeah. like I'll read the same page like five times in a row and just be happy about it. <laughs> yeah. And it's just yeah. like, I don't know. I take my time with it. What was the process of like building the world of Eric Bein like? Like what, like where did or you talked a little bit about like the inspiration being like these like kind of classic sci-fi like tropes, but yeah. Do you, do you want to? Um, do you have anything more to say about I guess like that that world that we don't like maybe explicitly get on the page? Yeah. Um, so tell you more about the like the world building. Mm-hmm. Uh, I feel like just my go-to was just a forest world. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, just because that's you know I live in the forest. <laughs> and when I when I when I first started writing it, I was like, I don't know uh, if I should do that. It seems like it's just like the typical thing to do. But mm-hmm. I got over that. And uh, we're talking so much about uh, Ursula Le Guin. You know, it's been a long time since I read it, but I'm sure a lot of inspiration for it has come from uh, the word for world is forest. Mm-hmm. I love that book. Uh, yeah. But and then a lot of what I wrote just came from me just trying to have fun with this with the story, you know, uh, like I didn't have a lot of ideas in mind. Like and then I just like, for instance, what was it? I said something about like canning the guts of on uh tempest nine like i just thought that sounded cool like i don't know what i don't know what tempest nine is but it sounds real fucked up (laughs) i love that i love i love like things like that with authors yeah just gonna throw this in that's beautiful (laughs) yeah uh you know what's funny is that i realized after the fact that a lot of the things like that actually, like Te- Tempest Nine, kind of rhymes with Arag Bine, and so mm. does like the Jarib Spines. <laughs> okay, like just, like, yeah. I, I just yeah. come up with just came up with just like random sounding words and stuff like that that I thought sounded cool, and then it kind of followed this pattern, which goes yeah. nicely with uh, how the character was telling that a lot of the stuff he he learned was from rhymes that his gra told him, you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, what else about the world? I don't know. It was just like a forest world, like bogs and stuff like that, that I tried to just come up with. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I don't know. It's like, uh, like I, I kind of love finding out that, yeah, things like like Tempest Nine or like whatever or like things that are kind of made up on the spot, but like 
it it is all these like weird random details like that or like like the mention of like the maroons without like ever talking about them it's like you know it's like even if the author doesn't necessarily like know what those things are or like want to flesh them out it's like the characters know what they are and we know that the characters know what they are and that's like that it's just like a beautiful thing to see in writing it's like the balance of like explaining things versus like just mentioning something that everyone in the world is familiar with and the characters just roll with it and the the readers like wait but what is that (laughs) and it's just it's like a fun mystery yeah it's like it's fun for the reader and it also like definitely keeps it fun writing Mm -hmm. something else i'll mention that's that you'll probably think is funny is that a lot of the made up words or a lot of the yeah, made up words and names are uh, it's like random shit that I'd be like calling my sons and my, my children. <laughs> like I, I have two toddlers and uh-huh. uh, like like the name Armoctopo was just some weird random. Like I just called called the kid. I was like, come here, Armoctopo. Like uh, <laughs> a lot of the a lot of the stuff like that is from that. uh like I, I was diagnosed with uh, ADHD like as an adult, mm-hmm. and uh, it comes out through a lot of stuff like that. You know, it's just like in, in kind of impulsive, just random thoughts. Mm-hmm. Like I'll just, I'll, I, like I'll call, I called my son like a bull rim bim, and then I was like, I gotta write that down. That sounds hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But the problem with that. Is, is like i'm always afraid like i'm like i better google what that is like what if it's actually something totally i don't even know you know yeah that's great i'm glad i'm glad that you google to 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 check yourself (laughs) that's yeah it's like winsley adams that's what i was calling my kid one day just being a weirdo (laughs) i was like why does it sound so good and like isn't there like an american president president that's like quincy adams or something it's yeah, some weird assonance with other random things. Yeah, <laughs> well, Winsley Adams, or or sorry, Quincy Adams, but then also Adams. Wednesday Adams. The oh wow, yeah, wow. <laughs> See, there's like all this random stuff going on in the back of my head, and it comes out. Yeah, <laughs> and I don't know. It's like I feel like there there can be a lot of different things going on in like writing sometimes, and it's like there's I you know I appreciate like a lot of different sides of that where it's like uh you know like i have read a bunch of like patrick rothfuss books and like i'm like i love that you could write an encyclopedia about like how you came up with these names and like trace their etymologies through like the eons of your world and into ours um but there is something really beautiful and fun about just like making something up and throwing it in and having it be this like weird lingering detail that like is become like the more some of the like more memorable parts of the story is like, oh, yeah, these like this group of people that like live on the planet, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, I don't know. It's really fun. I had a lot of fun with those uh, parts of the story are like all the all the funny little like lingering details which like yeah yeah it's yeah, just it was very beautifully written i loved it 
Thank you. Our, I'm probably we're probably going to start wrapping things up. Um, is there are there any more things that you want to say about the story um, or like writing in general that we haven't talked about already? Yeah, I guess I'll t- I could talk more about like the writing aspect is something I was thinking about a lot. Going back to cool. the question where I was explaining, like I, I have uh, a lot of different creative uh, mediums mm-hmm. and I'm finding that writing is w- working very well with that. Um, I find that whether it's writing or any type of art form, you know, my creativity comes from a place of appreciation for like consuming someone else's art, you know, like, uh, like when you read something or if you like hear something in music that you really love, it's like that, that feeling of appreciation for it can be very fleeting and and you feel like, what, what else can you do with that? And like the first thing you could think of doing is like, I'm going to share it. Like I'm going to tell somebody else to, to like read this book or listen to this song or something like that. Mm-hmm. And like when that's not enough, how else can you share it? And then it's like you share those feelings by creating something yourself. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah. I don't know. It's something on my mind that I've been trying to express into words. I don't know how to. And like I said, writing is better, <laughs> better suited for how I can share those thoughts. But I, I'll probably articulate it better in the future but you know what i mean yeah yeah no i do i do and um do you want to do you want to talk can you say anything more about your your book that you've been you've been writing um general general insights uh overview Um, or whatever you know not overview but like you know don't give anything uh, away but yeah like i don't know i i still don't know where like i've actually looked it up I'm like, how how much do you share about it? You know, like, I don't know totally. if I want to give away anything about, like, the world building or anything like that. Yeah. And uh, I will say that it's, like, a very, very in-depth uh, project in world building. You know, it's I came up with the idea for the book, or for really, I came up with the motivation to write the book while uh, reading, like, I... The, reading like the Hainish novels from Ursula Le Guin <laughs> and uh, also reading Lord of the Rings, the Lord of the Rings, uh, which I had never actually read before. Like, I feel like I'm reading it real late <laughs> and I, I love those books and uh, I have, I have a big appreciation for like prose. Like I was talking about Ursula Le Guin before and his pro like Tolkien's prose is amazing. Mm-hmm. And the story's good, but it's like missing stuff. Mm-hmm. Or uh, like I'm not happy with like all the monarchy shit and like the weird race stuff. You know, yeah. uh, there's a lot to be unhappy with about it. So I said, "Fuck it, I just want to write my own." You know, <laughs> yeah. And you know, that's not a very humble thing to say, I suppose. It's like I'm writing the anarchist Lord of the Rings, but that's kind of <laughs> what I was calling for. And but at the same time, I feel like that doesn't do it justice because. I'm not writing some, because the the book isn't like about war against like orcs and shit like that. It's mm-hmm. not focused more. It's it's more just like a, like I followed the, the tropes of like 
you know, there's a, there's like a wizard, and there's like a journey, like mm-hmm. traveling, like world building and stuff like that. I can't wait to share it. I wish I could tell more about it, but I I feel like that's I feel like it's universally frowned upon <laughs> before like reaching out to any uh, literary agents or publishers with, yeah. with the manuscript and stuff like that. Yeah, but uh, no, it, it also the story. Uh, it it's not just fantasy themed, you know. It has a lot of horror, which I find myself pretty skilled at writing for whatever reason. <laughs> you know, I don't know if it's just violent is easy to write, or if I have a some sort of disposition towards it. I hope that that's not the case. Maybe, <laughs> maybe that sounds bad. I don't know, <laughs> but it's not over the top. You know, it's not none of that is a yeah. I'm not a fan of like the unnecessary violence. I guess the violence isn't what I'm talking about in particular. The horror is what I was talking about. But it's like it's fantasy. There's horror. uh, And then there's also science fiction, like kind of in the background. You know, I don't know how much I want to reveal about that before sharing it. Or if I ever want to change in the manuscript, how much is revealed to the reader and when anyway. But there's... You know, it's on another planet, and uh, and it, there's science fiction behind in the <laughs> sick in the plot. Yeah, it. Yeah, I can't wait to share it. Yeah, Hopefully I described it good enough. <laughs> I got to learn how to how to pitch it better. <laughs> I mean, you, you know, you had me at Anarchist Lord of the Rings, um, cool. with sci-fi. Right. So. <laughs> <laughs> um which you know like i i'm a personal fan of like i love i love the melding of those genres so much um and there's so there's so much weird fun stuff that people can do with that and always want more of it always want to read it written by anarchists so i am very excited to or people with like anarchistic leanings or ideologies like whatever you know yeah. Um, is there anywhere is there anywhere on the internet that people can find you or your work that you would like to be found at? Um, so uh in preparation for this interview, I was like, damn, I don't really have anything to to pitch at the end, you know? Uh no because I don't really have anything published. Mm-hmm. I I don't have like a Patreon or anything like that uh for writing. Uh, I did have a Patreon for a while with the podcast mixtape I, I was doing for Channel Zero Network or with Channel Zero Network called Ransom Notes. Uh, I'm on Twitter. My Twitter username is at agithop. That's like A-G-I-T underscore H-O-P, which was it was supposed to be like a play on words with like agitprop and like hip hop or like chill hop, which is, which is kind of like the... The music I was I was making for a while, and so I took a break with the writing. So you can follow me on there right now. It's nice. uh, and by the by the time that this podcast is published, uh, I'll probably be open to more followers or whatever on my Twitter. Right now, I put it, I like locked it on private or something like that. But go follow me on there because it won't be on private for long. <laughs> 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 try try and follow <laughs> um cool and uh what, what what is this other what, what 
what what is this other project that you had with uh, yeah, Channel this Zero? Was, it was uh, it was described as podcast mixtapes, and it, it was heavily focused on hip hop music, and with with a anarchist lean. I was inspired by Submedia's "Burning Cop Car" was the name of the podcast, <laughs> which was amazing. Yeah, uh, cool. Frank Lopez was so doing it I've there. not listened to that um, one. Cool. Yeah, the the idea behind it was that I was gonna just like every month I'd come out with like new old music, and then mix in uh, like samples and stuff like that from other podcasts, like a lot of political stuff, and that that's where the name came from. Ransom notes. It was kind of like you know, play on the sampling techniques of hip hop. You know, it's like cutting up cutting up all the other people's message right in your own <laughs> that sounds appropriate yeah cool yeah. <laughs> hell yeah but I, yeah put that i, I put that project that on hold there, there's a lot of episodes already out and they're mixtapes so it's like it doesn't have to be new like i go back and listen to them just because they're all my favorite songs nice nice um well i will i'll look for that and link it in the show notes so people can find it um okay so uh i've been doing this new segment at the end of the show um, calling it the the word of the month or something, which is I'm going to ask you about a word. Maybe you know what the word is. Maybe you have an idea of what the word uh, the word's origins are. And then if you don't, then I'll then I'll tell you about it. So, do you know the do you know the word f- foray? Foray. Foray. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I, I would think. I'm thinking of the word uh, it's like a like a volley in like combat or like that's I might be wrong but like a foray I think of like a foray of attacks between like warring nations or something yeah yeah cool great yeah no that I mean that that is that is one of the definitions of of foray yeah so this came up recently with um uh, one of my roommates um, mentioned that they were about to go lead a mushroom foray. And I was like, that's a f- cute way to think about going to look for mushrooms as these little mushroom <laughs> battles. And they were like, what? Like, what are you talking about? And I was like, I was like, isn't that what that word means? And they're like, oh, no, like it means to forage. And I was like, okay, I have to, I have to like dig into this. And so, foray has has a pretty a pretty lengthy pretty lengthy origin, um, but it takes some roots from uh, old English, um, from words like uh, fodor um, or fodder, uh, meaning a roving in search of provisions. It. It, it like it, a lot of like most of its most of its history is like words related to food. So like fure f- uh, from modern French, more um, like hay, straw, bed, and foray is just kind of like the verb form of to forage. But eventually, in the late 14th century, it came to mean a predatory incursion or like you know like a skirmish, a you are going out to look for a a fight or a battle or something in these like warring situations. 
And, you know, this, this, the, this part is now the like kind of folk etymology that I'm trying to figure out is like, you know, how did, how did this evolution happen? How did, how did this word go from going to forage for food to a, like a, a battle or a skirmish? And, you know, based on no research, this is just some, some theory, some theorying here. It makes me wonder if people were like going out to look for food and like, because it, it also at some point came to mean like pillaging or looting. And it's like we have these like different ideas of like how the commons used to work of like going to look for food in the commons in the forest and like other people maybe eventually being like, oh, actually this is my property and you're like stealing. And it makes me wonder if that's a potential for like how this word shift occurred is like, people going out to look for food to nah you're looting and then it having this like negative violent connotation and eventually just being like uh turning into this like violent violently connotated word yeah but all theories no no research so uh yeah because it seems like it has like a lot of territorial whether it's like actually harvesting stuff or like you you had said like a foray for mushrooms is like going just going for a walk whether it's like you a for like you're just walking into like another entity's like territory whether it's to pick anything or not like a foray could mean mm-hmm. you're like an incursion like you're like you just have a military like yeah. enter some other land but also i think when you when you said that it came from the word fodder you know the first thing i thought of was like cannon fodder like that has a similar Oh yeah, uh, pathway. Yeah, yeah. Words, words are fun and weird like that. And um, it's funny because I, I then asked my roommate, like, like, can mushroom harvesting be competitive? And they were like, <laughs> absolutely. And I was like, oh, so maybe sometimes they are like little mushroom battles. <laughs> it is to the squirrels every time. Um, cool. Well, uh, think th- that's probably where we'll leave it. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and, uh, we look, yeah, we look forward to seeing, seeing yeah, more writing you. from thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please go tell someone about it. Whisper its name in their ear, program it into an AI and see what happens in a thousand years. Also, you can rate and review and like, and subscribe or whatever the algorithm calls for. Feed it like a hungry god. But really, just tell people about it. It's the main way that people hear about the show and honestly one of the best ways to support it. However, if you want to support us in other sillier ways that don't involve feeding a nameless and mysterious entity, consider supporting the show financially by subscribing to our Patreon. If you subscribe to our Patreon at $10 a month, we will mail to you a zine version of the pieces that you hear here every month anywhere in the world. You can also get access to an archive of Old Strangers content, as well as discounts on things like t-shirts and books we publish. Find us at patreon.com slash strangers in a tangled wilderness. And now for some updates. We have a new book out. Um, well, it's been out for a while, but Escape from Incel Island by Margaret Killjoy, a short action novella about escaping an island full of incels. If you would like to carry our books in your distro or bookstore, if you're in the U.S., please contact AK Press, our distributor, 
And if you're outside of the U.S., get in touch with us at strangers.publisher at gmail.com. We have a newer, newish podcast out. There's a couple episodes now. The Anarcho Geek Power Hour. It's a blast. It'll feature several different Strangers Collective members. On the latest episode, uh, we talk about Apocalypse Media. And uh, soon we're going to have an episode where I interview Margaret about Escape from Incel Island. Our theme music is by Margaret Kiljoy. Our zine layout is by Cassandra. And thanks to the lovely Mountain Goblins that mail out the feature every month. That's all my plugs, except for a very special series of shoutouts to these wonderful people who have helped make this podcast, as well as so many other projects possible. Thank you, Janice, Oxalis, Paige, Hans, Ali, Paparuna, Milica, Boise Mutual Aid, Theo, Hunter, Sean, SJ, Paige, Mickey, Nicole, David, Dana, Chelsea, Kat J, Starro, Jennifer, Eleanor, Kirk, Sam, Chris, Micaiah, and Haas the dog. Thank you so much for your support. It means so much to us and has allowed us to get so much done as a collective. And lastly, a lot of these features on the podcast come from listeners like you. So if you feel like a stranger that would like to find their story a home in this tangled wilderness, consider submitting it. We will complete the mission. Next month, we have a lovely little short memoir-like piece about sex work. Stay well. We hope you come back.